The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And I think not only in the United States, but in open societies in general, we have seen a plague of political warfare emerging from, from cyberspace. Look, the, the, the problem is that in an information age, everything that makes you prosperous and powerful also makes you vulnerable. And for the United States in particular, a point I make in the book, while we have paid a great deal of attention to offensive capabilities, our defenses are the worst, uh, certainly the worst in the developed countries. And, and I'm not the only one who says this. Uh, Richard Clark, who was cyber czar for a couple of presidents, uh, wrote in his book on, on cyber war. And, and he actually has a little table there where he reflects on the offensive and defensive capabilities of uh, the leading nations. And uh, the United States comes in absolutely last on, on defense. And, uh, you know, there, there was a time we talked about a strategic defense initiative. Uh, in terms of Star Wars against nuclear weapons. And we, we sort of realized that's never possible, but we need a new strategic defense initiative and it needs to be aimed at improving our security in cyberspace. I'm Ian Enright, and this is a Lawfare Podcast for August 25th, 2021. Jack Goldsmith sat down with John Arquilla, analyst with the RAND Corporation. He's the author of a new book, Bitscreek, the new challenge of cyber warfare. The two discussed the challenges posed by cyber warfare, which John argues have been neither met nor mastered. He offers solutions for protecting against enemies that are often anonymous, unpredictable, and capable of projecting force and influence vastly disproportionate to their size, strength, or wealth. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 25th, Bitskrieg with John Arquilla. So John, thanks for coming. I really liked your book, Bitskrieg, The New Challenge of Cyber Warfare. You wrote a famous article 28 years ago called Cyber War is Coming. So I thought we should start off by you just telling us about that famous article and how you see the intervening 28 years and just an overview of what Bitskrieg is about. So I had the good fortune to be working with David Ronfeldt at the Rand Corporation about 30 years ago, and he was working on information technologies and how they were going to change business and administration. I was a bombs and bullets guy who at Rand at the time who was uh, associated with a small team, included uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, by the way, 
working for General Schwarzkopf during the uh, Gulf crisis of, of 1990 and 1991, the, the, the subsequent Operation Desert Storm. And it occurred to me that something very unusual was happening that allowed us to win in a lopsided way. Uh, we had information systems that gave us an absolutely clear picture of what was going on while our opponent could only see a, a part of the chessboard. Indeed, it was like a chess game in which we could see all the pieces and he could see only his own. And it, uh, it led to a, a very rapid and, and tremendous uh, victory at low cost. So I come back to Rand afterward and uh, David's office is across from mine and I, I read uh, his paper on what he called cyberocracy. And I uh, said to him, David, I have one word for you, cyber war. And, uh, and so we were off to the races and uh, suggesting that the information revolution was going to have profound strategic implications for society and security. And in the intervening three decades, what I have found is that certainly in society and in business, uh, we've seen a great transformation due to the information revolution. In the military, on the other hand, I think we've seen very, very little progress in understanding the importance of information systems, of uh, keeping them secure, making the best use of them, disrupting the enemy's systems in time of armed conflict. Uh, very, very little change. And, and I think our record militarily over the last 20 years suggests uh, a very, very small level of attention has been given to this. So 28 years later, I, I'm pretty disappointed uh, on the military level. I am, however, very impressed uh, with the ways in which society has been transformed by advanced information technologies. So, but at the same time, as you emphasize in the book, we've grown extraordinarily vulnerable. And you, you talk about uh, just how completely porous our defenses are. So could you just talk about, you know, the scale of that and why it's a bad thing? You kind of propose strong encryption as an across the board if not solution policy that should be implemented but first explain the problem and then why is that the solution as opposed to other solutions sure cybersecurity is indeed in poor shape today and and partly because of again a wrong mindset in the military there's this belief in firewalls and antiviral software these are marginal lines. And as I uh, like to say, we should be, uh, imagine no lines, uh, figure out that the bad guys will always get in. So make sure they can't benefit from that. That's why strong encryption is so important. Now in civil society, a similar problem, the business model of cybersecurity is based on those same marginal lines. And uh, it has left us pretty insecure I think the trends in, in civil society are a little bit better. Cloud computing is much more on the rise, and that's important. Now, look, the, the cloud is simply someone else's computer, uh, but it is somewhere else outside your own system. It's a good place to back up your information so you're less vulnerable to ransomware attacks. Uh, but I add a little something else to this in, in the book, and, and that is the idea of data mobility. Uh, simply put, Data at rest are data at risk. It's going to get got if it's sitting in one place, either on your own system or somewhere in the cloud. And so the idea here is not only to encrypt information strongly, put it in the cloud, but then move it around. And indeed, for very sensitive information, you should break it into parts after encrypting it and then keep those parts moving around. 
we have the software and the hardware to do this with facility at only modest cost over the way we do business today. And when you factor in the cost of all the intellectual property theft, which, by the way, worldwide is now about $2 trillion a year. And uh, by comparison, ransomware is only about a $20 billion business uh, worldwide. Look, we could take the sting out of IP theft and ransomware if we simply move to this new security paradigm. So this will be counterintuitive for some people. Why is deploying the cloud and moving data around? It's not obvious why that promotes cybersecurity. I understand what you mean, but you should explain that. Sure. You use the right word, counterintuitive. Why would I send my sensitive information somewhere else? Isn't it going to be more secure if I have it behind triple-belled firewalls in my own system? The problem is that your own system is in a particular place. And depending on your organization's size, the weakest link uh, among any of your employees is the portal into your system. So if you're one of the Fortune 100 companies trying to protect your intellectual property, well, first of all, if you keep it inside your own system, the bad guys are going to know, hey, I just need to get into that R&D department. And, uh, and indeed, uh, many, many years ago, I, I took a, a hacker acquaintance of mine who uh, gave me the heads up about uh, the hacking of, I, I can't mention the company's name, but one of the top companies in, in the world that uh, a hacker was roaming free and wild inside their R&D department. And uh, so I brought him to the CIO, the chief information officer of that company. And uh, the, the CIO uh, said to me, there's, there's absolutely no way anyone could be inside our system. And, and the hacker who was with me had this little device in his hand, which he was fiddling with while we were talking. And he simply turned it around and showed it to the CIO and, and showed him how this guy was wandering around inside his own system. So paradoxically, the best way to protect your own information is by putting it out somewhere else in the custody of others' cloud services and then making sure you keep it moving as, as well. This is particularly important, of course, for our commercial prosperity. Increasingly, it's important for military information security. And I'm proud to say the institution I've been associated with for a very long time, the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, has been one of the pioneers in encouraging the military use of cloud computing services. So can you talk through, through one more example? Just take one of the most, you know, the prominent hacks in recent years, SolarWinds or the Microsoft Exchange hack or OPM. How would better encryption have prevented those from happening or weakened or lowered the, the consequences of those things happening? Sure. Uh, well, the, the OPM hack, I was caught up in that. Uh, my, yeah, sensitive, my, my highly secure uh, personnel file was, was accessed in that and, uh, and all my wife's information too, for which she's never forgiven me. Now, how could we have avoided that? Uh, first of all, if that data had remained within the OPM system, but had been strongly encrypted, it would have been very, very hard for hackers to make good use of that information. But the second point I, I would make is that even better on top of encryption would have been to uh, use cloud services to move it offshore so the bad guys don't know they just have to hack into OPM with its thousands of employees and just guess the password of one of them and get inside the system. So they, they wouldn't even, you know, how would they even know which web service were being used, et cetera? We all we would have saved millions of current and former government employees from being hacked and having their most sensitive, my most sensitive classified file was uh, was hacked in, in that case. 
So we could be doing a lot, lot better if, uh, if only we embrace these. Again, I have to emphasize, these are simple fixes. And the sad thing is, of course, in the United States, uh, there was a lot of official opposition to the use of strong encryption because law enforcement and intelligence didn't like the idea that people might have information systems that they couldn't peer into. Right. But so, but what about that? You talk about that in the book, but how are we, this is a huge question and your book is not primarily about this, but I mean, it seems pretty obvious the U S government doesn't, you know, half of it does officials that work at the NSA, when they leave the government, suddenly they love encryption, but when they're (laughs) there, you know, they, they want to be able to surveil and intercept messages and the like, and they worry about encryption. And are you just, is your basic view that, that security is more important than surveillance? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, Jack. Uh, you have to do the, the, the cost-benefit analysis. We would be so exceptionally better off if security were improved that even if it came at some cost in uh, surveillance, it would, be, it would be worthwhile. And let me just say, for, for the record, the bad guys that we're chasing after are already using the strongest encryption out there. To deny it to commercial concerns and individuals is to basically disarm them in the kind of cyber war that I describe as strategic crime. It really keeps those criminals most secure and, and their victims least secure. So, so it seems to me that, uh, you know, you've put your finger on it, that there is a, a, a great policy discourse that we have to engage on this in a pretty flinty-eyed way. But of course, commercial readily available encryption has become much more available. But why isn't it more comprehensively available? I mean, what is the is the barrier? The barrier is not only that the U.S. government, in some elements, doesn't like it. What is the broader reason why these security measures haven't been implemented? Just on on a basis where everyone can benefit from it. I think there are two reasons why encryption, cloud computing, data mobility have really not become the norm. And and the first of those reasons is simple uh, market failure, as the economists would would put it. The purveyors of these technologies simply have not had demand from consumers uh, for the most secure products. And uh, in the book, of course, I quote from uh, Vint Cerf, who said, you know, at the start of all this, we, we weren't really thinking about security because it wasn't demanded by the marketplace. And it, and it still isn't. People want products that are uh, cheap, fast, attractive, portable. And so uh, they have moved product development in, in directions that have never had to emphasize security. Uh, in terms of the uh, governmental role, uh, one of the problems we have with government assuming a regulatory role in providing standards is that there are a lot of people on both the left and the right who uh, really don't wish to see government intruding too much in this whole area of uh, information technology. And so uh, while we have uh, government regulation of wide ranges of other types of products in, in other areas, we've seen a kind of hands-off approach here. So whether the story is uh, sort of at the, the economic market level or the political regulatory level, we really haven't seen much progress for a long time. And as I note in the book, we're beginning to see a little bit of movement in, in the right direction, and in part because people are starting to uh, realize in the face of massive intellectual property theft, it just hemorrhages out of our leading companies. 
And uh, with one incident after another of these uh, terrible ransomware attacks, I, I think the public consciousness has grown considerably, and I, and I have hope to see a significant change. So, but isn't the problem hard to overcome? I mean, the basic incentive problem, and I'll just characterize it this way, that the perceived short-term benefits of free or inexpensive new products with high innovation that American consumers and American firms like to take all those short-term benefits. We export the cybersecurity costs down the road. This has been happening for decades now. Yeah. And some version of that logic has been happening for decades. And it's and it and e- even as the costs of cyber insecurity grows, that logic still seems to be pervasive. I mean, it's not just the inadequate encryption, it's you know, liability rules, it's standards for software. All of these measures make products more expensive and make innovation harder. Correct me if you, if you disagree with any of this, but it seems like that there's just a huge collective action problem and that we just keep exporting cybersecurity costs down the road. And how do you overcome that? I mean, we just don't, even in the face of all these extraordinary events, cyber events of the last 10 years, say, we're still, we still haven't made that much progress. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I'm so frustrated decades after having uh, written Cyber War is, is coming. It's, it's here, it's terrible, and our habits of mind and institutional interests are keeping us from the uh, solutions that we need to pursue. I think you put your finger on it with the, uh, the idea of, first of all, short-term perspective, and, and second, the idea of downstreaming the, uh, the cost of this, you know, the, all that IP theft is uh, you, know, you know the costs are are born of that uh, down down the road by by the consumers, not only here but but around the world. I don't think the government regulatory role need be unduly complex. I I, I really feel there is a role for good governance uh, in this, and I I think there should be uh, can be and and will be. There have been attempts at legislation towards cybersecurity, better cybersecurity standards uh, a number of times. And and personally, I think that there is a large middle uh, among in the United States, among the electorate, that can certainly be persuadable on this point, given an articulate presentation of the the issues. The edges on right and left are going to be hard to uh, bring along, but I I think there's a a large middle, and it's certainly a discourse worth, worth having. So one word that you don't mention, so you're, you talk about what we should do on defense. You may have mentioned it, but it wasn't mentioned a lot, is the word deterrence. And I take it that that was not an accident. Uh, not at all. I, I think deterrence is a good paradigm for uh, nuclear weapons. You know, neither side should be using those mutual assured destruction. That still holds. That's pretty good. But whether we're talking about trying to deter insurgents and terrorists, that's just not happening, as we know from the last several decades, not just the last 20 years. And in cyberspace, look, hackers and the uh, cyber core in in various uh, countries uh, that are top flight, they just laugh at the whole idea of deterrence, in, in part because often they operate behind a veil of anonymity. And even when their identities are ultimately, uh, we think we have a pretty good handle on who they might be, it's still never enough to take any kind of, of firm action. And, and so and be, certainly beyond uh, economic sanctions. 
And so deterrence is pretty much dead when it comes to uh, cyber war. On the other hand, I, I do think there's uh, room for a kind of cyber arms control, uh, uh, behavior-based agreements like those that we have with the uh, chemical and biological weapons conventions. And I think we can do that for, for cyber. But uh, deterrence, that's dead. So I want to come back to your cyber arms agreements later on. But first, let's turn to what you said earlier, and a central theme in the book. It's, it seems to me that the, the main audience for this book, if one primary audience for the book is the Pentagon. And what you said earlier today, what you said at the top of the of our discussion about how DOD really hasn't absorbed and fully learned the lessons of information warfare and these new information technologies, digital technologies, may surprise people. I mean, you talk in the book, you basically say something like the, the military is taking these new tools and grafted them onto new ways of thinking, but they haven't really moved very much. Could you give us a full sense of what you mean by that? Well, why did we end up as part of a 200,000 troop presence in Afghanistan for years and years? Uh, We were at our very best when just 11 Green Beret A teams were in Afghanistan, less than 200 soldiers working with the tribes, but moving information very, very swiftly as they acquired it from our surveillance systems as they connected with our close air support, and they drove the Taliban and Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan in in a period of just weeks uh, once uh, Donald Rumsfeld set them loose over the objections of senior uniformed uh, leaders. What happened after that? It's as though we forgot all the lessons of that initial phase of operations, which was a true cyber war approach about the not just hurling mass and energy at an enemy, but using information as well and and skillfully. Uh, What we then did uh, afterward was to plunk down a couple hundred thousand troops between ourselves and our allies and to try to get our information by sending out uh, foot patrols and engaging uh, contact engagements, uh, which usually meant they would be attacked by surprise or since there were so many of them, lots of them would get blown up Uh, by IEDs. We presented our adversaries with lots of of targets. And conventional uh, thinking was, well, we have a country of X number of square miles, so we need a couple hundred thousand troops. We'll send them patrolling around and everything's going to be just fine. And everything wasn't uh, because our opponents realized that they could operate with a tremendous information advantage of their own. And they learned the lessons that we first taught them in the fall of 2001 and came back. And, and what we see now, this terrible debacle in Af- Afghanistan, is the uh, the whirlwind that we're reaping for not having pursued, developed, and evolved from that first great success in, in the fall of 2001. So I'm glad you raised that. Could you say more about that? Because you do talk about, you know, I think you finished the book last fall and or maybe in December or something like that, but you do talk about the Afghanistan presence. What should we have done I mean, in Afghanistan, using information skillfully, what would the what would the counterfactual look like? Well, the first strategic insight is that less is more. Uh, we should never have ramped up the uh, the, the number of troops, uh, and should have kept with the uh, special forces, A teams, and some ranger capabilities for quick reaction, and of course, tremendous support from our orbital and other air surveillance assets, as well as uh, other technologies that we won't talk about on on this podcast because they're of a very sensitive uh, nature. 
but the emphasis should have been on information gathering and and the special forces it's not just a technical matter it's the fact that they work closely uh, with the tribal uh, leaders. One of my students uh, was the advisor, for example, to Rashid Dostum, uh, one of the, what we would call a warlord, but who played a pivotal role in, in liberating Afghanistan from the, from the Taliban. And, uh, you know, his 12-man team worked very closely and did just fine. That should have been how we carried the weight of this war. Instead of trying to create a Western-style army. You know, the President Biden is often quoted saying, well, we built a 300,000-man army. Why didn't it fight? Well, it was the wrong kind of army. Uh, this is a, a tribal society, and we tried to reroute the currents of culture and, and history uh, by turning them into an American-style force. And what we ended up doing was taking some of the world's best natural warriors and turning them into the world's worst army as we uh, saw over the last couple of, of weeks. So we could have been in there, we could have saved about a trillion dollars, uh, been far more effective in, in the field. And, and you know, Jack, the lessons were there from I Iraq originally. When we used our, our main forces uh, against uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and during the early years of the insurgency there, uh, we made very little progress. But when we packetized our forces into small platoons in little outposts all over Anbar and other provinces working with friendly locals, we were able to bring the violence down by about 90% in, in one year and keep it down until we uh, uh, walked away. And even the fight against ISIS was one, actually a couple of my, my students, one of whom has uh, sad, tragically uh, died, uh, led a small force working closely with the Kurds that basically uh, drove uh, ISIS to destruction in, uh, in its home areas in northern Iraq and, and Syria. So the answers are, are all out there. But again, we, we suffer from the habits of mind and institutional interests of an old way of military thinking uh, that we see uh, yet again in this latest disaster in Afghanistan and which I, I know the disaster happened before my book was published, but I said it was, you know, it was going sideways. Yeah. Say more. I mean, introduce the, the Bitskrieg idea. Say more about what the Pentagon should be doing and say more about why they aren't doing it. I mean, is it really just habits of mind? I, I mean, surely, I mean, you know, there's, I can understand the habits of mind argument 20 years ago, but there are people in, mid and senior levels in the Pentagon now who are, if not digital natives, they're close to digital natives. And, you know, we did have lots of senior commanders in the last 20 years who were very adept at using information systems and operations. So say more about what the Pentagon should be doing and why it hasn't done it. Sure. Let, let me just say first that organizational culture is sticky. And even the digital natives who are making their way up followed in the train of officers who identified them early in their careers and have brought them along to senior levels. And, uh, you know, they, they, they can't help but absorb uh, a lot of those mindsets as, as they move up and as they move further away from, from the field, uh, which happens fair, fairly soon at the 12 to 15 year period in a 35 year career. So there's an organizational culture story in play as well. But, you know, how do you break through that? If, if that's true, I mean, is that just a permanent problem in the Pentagon? Uh, it, it, it certainly is. It, you know, in a previous book, it, it led me to suggest that we should close the Pentagon down. You know, it was initially supposed to be turned into a hospital for, uh, for veterans. I think we've created a centralized system that is 
in the military that has absolutely crippled innovation. They talk about building a culture of innovation. But again, I say organizational cultures are very, very sticky. So look, I use the term uh, Bitskrieg. It's uh, a sly reference to a century ago when the Germans figured out that the tank and the plane and the radio combined together in a new organization, the tank heavy armored division uh, was going to make a, a very, very big difference in military operations. And they were willing to do this in, in part because they'd suffered a defeat in the First World War. The victors in that war said to themselves, well, gee, we did okay. Uh, we're going to stick with what we have. And, and so it was a set of shocking defeats uh, before Britain and uh, Russia and um, to some extent the United States at Kasserine Pass before they began to adopt these new methods. And, and so the irony here, of course, in the age of uh, Bitskrieg, which is less about the bombs and bullets of warfare and more about the bits and bites, which is why we say Bitskrieg, the irony of the situation is that it is uh, we Americans who actually have the first demonstration proofs of this, but we're not paying enough attention to our own successes. Uh, instead, or, or I should say an earlier success, Operation Desert Storm, which was a big conventional operation. It didn't need to be, but it was. And a lot of people, the, the three and four stars today, had all their formative experience, the lieutenant generals and the full generals and, and admirals today, all had their formative experience in a war over 30 years ago in which our big left hook in the desert was observationally equivalent to uh, Field Marshal Rommel's right hooks in the desert in Africa 50 years earlier. So uh, we're going to have to wait a while, I believe, until those young officers who turned the tide in Iraq, the ones who led the, uh, the initial engagements with the tribes uh, in 2001 in Afghanistan, they're a decade out from putting on their second and third and fourth stars. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, you're right. Those folks, uh, they're not only digital natives, but they had those seminal experiences and, and they will keep faith with them. And I think they will finally bring a transformation of the American military. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But let me ask you this. You talked about in the book, you gave several examples about how a new military innovation can have changed the distribution of power between nations in wartime yeah. and, and more generally. And, you know, I'm increasingly of the view that 
the internet and digital systems is doing that for the United States. That our adversaries, of course, we don't know what we don't know. There's a lot that goes on in the classified world, but that are that we are that our extraordinary vulnerabilities and our inability or unwillingness to defend ourselves, and our adversaries seem to be more adept at using these these technologies and digital systems to cause us various forms of harm. Are digital systems like uh, the rifle, or is it like? Is it like, is it a new technology that, that is having distributional effects in, in the power of nations? Absolutely. I, I think the information revolution is going to profoundly reshape power politics. And, and that's why for Americans, we, you know, we've got to get with it since a, a lot of the things that are diffusing out to the world actually began with us. And, and, you know, that's sort of the case of what happened with Blitzkrieg, right? The, the diffusion of Blitzkrieg tactics actually led to the Russians uh, eventually overwhelming the, the Germans. It led to the uh, General Patton's drive in, in the West. Uh, the German run of advantage was, was pretty short. And so this diffusion problem is, is one that we, we face, and I think we're quickly getting behind here. Now, the Russians have suffered tremendous adversity since the dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union. And so they've been very open, and they have senior leadership like Gerasimov uh, and his uh, Gerasimov doctrine is uh, very much attuned to the strategic implications of the new technologies. China hasn't had a similar adversity, but they've been watching closely, and they show every sign of uh, being exceptionally clever about, about the uses of the technologies, whether for strategic crime, and I think their loose ties with the Asian triads and others are, are another kind of arms race underway. It's actually an organizational race to build ties with networks, just as the Russians have with hacker networks. Uh, beyond that, I think the Chinese military is uh, showing itself to be tremendously innovative. They're, in, at sea, for example, they're basically building a new kind of sea power without a traditional uh, a navy. Uh, they have a, a carrier or two, but they're really emphasizing smart weapons, uh, brilliant mines and hypersonic missiles. And of course, turning little reefs into uh, uh, missile batteries is uh, allowing them to assert control over and against international law in the East and South China Seas. So yeah, I think we're, we're seeing uh, what some call the great power competition uh, are reemerging in a way uh, highly to the detriment of the United States. You, you, you have an interesting account in the book why we haven't seen, um, I guess what I'll call strategic cyber war. Why is that? Why haven't we seen cyber weapons being used at the strategic level? Yeah, when we talk about strategic cyber war, what we mean are making the power go out over a large part of a country. We've seen some pilot tests of this uh, in the uh, Ivano-Frankivsk Oblast in uh, Ukraine a couple of years uh, uh, back. And that appeared to be a test of how you could shut down power in a, in a certain area or attacking automated control systems that uh, include coverage of pipelines or in Britain, for example, uh, they've got to be worried about those old uh, fans that uh, regulate the, uh, you know, the water in uh, East Anglia. They have entirely automated systems that are decades old there and uh, a strategic attack on them could probably flood a big part of Eastern Britain. And uh, sorry, British listeners, and, and these vulnerabilities go on and on. Now, why don't we see such attacks? Well, because we're not in the middle of a shooting war. And the fact of the matter is the kinds of 
cyber weapons needed to uh, engage in these sophisticated strategic attacks are wasting assets. If you use them, first of all, you're letting your enemy know you have the capability to do that, and he'll probably change things around so you won't ever be able to do that again. So these very, very intricate cyber weapons are basically use and, and lose, so or fire and forget, whatever metaphor you want to, want to use. So you really want to husband that arsenal until you absolutely, the stakes are high as in a shooting war. So that's, I think, one of the reasons we don't see uh, much by way of strategic cyber war. Do you think that our adversaries are getting the best of us with regard to lower level cyber conflict, theft, disruption, information operations, doxing, et cetera? It, it seems like we are. They seems like they're killing us based on the public record. We don't know, of course. It's 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 hard. You know, I think we get asymmetrical information. There's reporting on what happens to us, and less reporting on what we're doing to them. But my sense is that we're getting our clock clean. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. It's the death of a thousand cuts. And um, uh, again, we're we're, we're looking at uh, the hemorrhaging of intellectual property, which results in pirated and counterfeit products in the you know, realm of about $2 trillion annually uh, being being sold out there. So our prosperity is is very much at risk. It seems to me cyber-based political warfare, uh, which can be undertaken by just a handful of operatives using artificial intelligence to amplify, to pretend to be other people and these robot networks, which can be mobilized uh, by hacking into items on the Internet of Things, you can end up with uh, robot networks with hundreds of thousands to in the low millions who are uh, putting out messages uh, for you. And I think not only in the United States, but in open societies in general, we have seen a plague of political warfare emerging from, from cyberspace. Look, the, the, the problem is that in an information age, everything that makes you prosperous and powerful also makes you vulnerable. And for the United States in particular, a point I make in the book, while we have paid a great deal of attention to offensive capabilities, our defenses are the worst, uh, certainly the worst in the developed countries. And, and I'm not the only one who says this. Uh, Richard Clark, who was cyber czar for a couple of presidents, uh, wrote in his book on on cyber war, and and he actually has a little table there where he reflects on the offensive and defensive capabilities of uh, the leading nations, and uh, the United States comes in absolutely last on on defense. And uh, you know there there was a time we talked about a strategic defense initiative uh, in terms of Star Wars against nuclear weapons, and we we sort of realized that's never possible. But we need a new strategic defense initiative, and it needs to be aimed at improving our security in cyberspace. We've discussed this already, but we've been, people have been saying that for at least 20 years. You've been saying it for longer than that. And it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, again, it's uh, part of the institutional story, right? I mean, that's uh, kind, of, kind of the case. But I, I think the time is, and one of the reasons I, I wrote this book uh, uh, now is that I think the time is actually getting ripe to uh, engage in significant change. And it's basically an American grand strategy that not only will improve our, our cyber defenses, but will make for a world in which there will be less of this kind of disruptive political warfare uh, that will transform certainly our military and ultimately uh, others in ways that will make the future wars fought actually uh, less bloody, perhaps more disruptive, 
but make war something uh, less than the terrible scourge it, it has uh, been, not only in World War II, but, but since. And, and so I, I see uh, reasons uh, for hope, and, and I think the United States could be truly a, a leader in, in this area. Uh, you know, we're, we're sending uh, hundreds of millions of uh, vaccines out to, uh, to the world, even as we uh, try to vaccinate our, our own country. It's kind of a metaphor for what we should be doing in cyber, too. We should be helping others to defend themselves better technically and politically at the same time that we should be trying to improve ourselves. Well, we're, you know, we live in a country where roughly half of it still refuses to be vaccinated. Is it any surprise that there's still so much resistance to moving in more secure directions in cyberspace? You mentioned artificial intelligence a second ago, and you have interesting thoughts on that in the book. Could you just explain AI is a huge topic, but how you think that plays out across the range of considerations we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think G.I. Joe is going to meet up with A.I. Jane in, in the future. Uh, the aircraft transformed uh, land and naval warfare in the 20th century. A.I. is going to transform operations on land, at sea, in the air, in orbit, and, and is already transforming cyberspace. Operations move so swiftly there, it's beyond human capacity. So we rely fairly heavily on uh, automated uh, systems. And uh, the challenge here. I think, is to integrate, not to replace humans with AIs, uh, but to integrate, to, to have units in, in which the, uh, the robots serve uh, with humans. Uh, we can do this uh, in the air right now. I see squadrons that'll have, some squadrons will have a few human pilots, a few remote pilots, drones, if you will, and then some fully uh, robotic uh, systems. The same thing is occurring at sea. Frankly, the Chinese are already uh, using AI. A lot of their weapon systems are fully automated. Uh, these brilliant minds I talk about, they sit on the bottom of the Taiwan Strait and they're smart enough to recognize what types of ships are coming by and they know what an American carrier looks like. So they're programmed to be able to detach from the bottom and position themselves right under the keel of a ship and detonate and break the back of even the largest uh, supercarrier. So there's all kinds of things AI can be doing from the tactical level right up to the highly strategic uh, level. It, it seems to me that this is waiting to be exploited. Uh, a point I also make is that when we think about artificial intelligence in military affairs, it doesn't have to be just something that shoots or detonates. It can also be something that helps us plan and, and it seems to me, uh, you know, we already see IBM talking about how AI can be used to help with corporate strategy. Well, AI can also help with military strategy. And, and again, there's something that, the, you know, the human culture at that highest strategic level is highly resistant. But I'm very heartened by uh, what I see at a tactical level in recent years where uh, human beings, the human soldiers have bonded very closely uh, with their their robots in the field, sometimes when they get blown up, they get a, a burial, and and sometimes they're given medals to uh, to to wear. You talking about the robot, the robots? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, look, people love their cars. Why wouldn't they love their you know soldier robots? And what kind of robots exactly are you talking about there? They get burials and medals. Well, uh, one was uh, uh, one that was a robot that dealt with uh, mines and IEDs. 
Uh, we have other uh, robots that will, for example, uh, you know, go into the building to see what's there. It's, you know, you, you want to send a human soldier into the most dangerous area or do you want to send your bot in? And a lot of soldiers' lives have been saved by, uh, by their bots. And, and so this is something that's, that's coming along. I will note two quick things about AI and how the military is embracing AI. In December of 2019, uh, we had a very interesting exercise at uh, Fort Benning between a very small defending force and a very large attacking force. And the defenders got all their information, surveillance, and reconnaissance from artificially intelligent observation systems, and uh, which then disseminated the information to the small units that were defending. And they absolutely destroyed the attacking force because they had more information, they had it more quickly, and they used it better. And uh, that's a very, very powerful existence proof. Uh, another sign in air warfare is not too long ago, uh, we had an experiment in dogfighting uh, with a, a human Top Gun pilot going up against an AI. They were both flying uh, same flight simulators. And in five dogfights, the AI won each time, and the human was never able to put a single hit on the AI. And if we really embrace this in terms of air power, we're going to be able to build aircraft that can be designed beyond the tolerance of the human body and, and reach performance levels that are hitherto un, unheard of. So it's, uh, it's really a question of you know, which, which militaries are going to embrace this tie between uh, humans and intelligent machines. There's all sorts of ethical questions I'd like to ask you about that, but I want to move on to your arms control proposal. So in other areas of international relations, when in security situations, when nations are getting hurt because of weak defenses and when deterrence doesn't work for various reasons or might not suffice, a third option is cooperation or mutual constraint where you agree to not do certain things in exchange for your adversary not doing certain things. And yet, I mean, I've talked a bit myself about ways that the United States could improve its security situation through types of cooperation. So why don't you just tell us your general view on that and, the, and, the, and what works and what doesn't and your specific proposal? Yeah, look, 25 years ago, I was asked to be part of a team uh, meeting with Russian cyber experts to talk about a, a range of issues and the possibility of setting some kind of uh, rules of, of the road. And uh, first, I was, I was deeply impressed that uh, you know, they, they had a four-star admiral uh, leading their uh, delegation, their senior international lawyer, and of course, a couple of technical experts. And on our end were you know, some woolly professors, basically. Uh, so it gave a sense of how important the Russians uh, felt this, uh, this gathering was. And we came up with the idea that uh, while you couldn't control the technology, all information technology basically is dual use. You can use it to make money or you can use it to make war or just to communicate, uh, etc. So you can't control it the way you can fissile material. But there is another kind of arms control that's based on behavior. The, the experts call it uh, operational arms control. And uh, we explored that at some length over the course of, of a week. And um, I, you know, I, I went back to the Pentagon and said, look, it's time to do this. Uh, there's a, a good opportunity to uh, prevent this from getting out of control. And of course, the, um, my masters back at the time said, well, we're so far ahead of the Russians. That's the only reason they want an arms control agreement. And so the United States blocked efforts in the UN 
shortly after that meeting and for years after about any kind of, of uh, cyber arms control. Now, it is purely behavior-based. You agree not to do certain things. The technology is all there to do terrible things, but you agree not to. And uh, that, it seems to me, is, is both a strength and a, and a vulnerability because it's easy to do. You just say, we, we won't start using these things if you don't, uh, sort of a no first use uh, sort, of, sort of agreement. A couple of problems uh, with it, aside from the fact that you know, American leadership was so opposed to it at the beginning, but another problem is it doesn't speak to the non-state actors who are uh, very powerful in, in the cyber uh, world. My view is it's still worthwhile getting nations to agree because that would reduce the space. For example, if we had a formal agreement to which both sides adhered, uh, all sides adhered, let's say Russian was a, Russia was a signatory to this, what would the Internet Research Agency be doing now? They wouldn't have the same kind of comfortable haven they have uh, in Russia. So it would be a little more difficult, the permissiveness of uh, cyber mischief uh, by these non-state hacker networks would, you know, you'd have a less permissive world uh, for them. This is not a perfect thing, but it certainly would make things a a, a lot better. And I'm very pleased that President Obama in 2015 pushed uh, for some kind of behavior-based agreement with President Xi of China. And I'm very glad that President Biden raised the issue uh, with Vladimir Putin when they met uh, uh, recently. So hopefully we'll, we'll see some kind of movement in this direction. I think for all, all its limitations, this is something very much worth doing. And, and I hope the United Nations is brought in. And certainly AI needs to come under the rubric of some kind of arms control here. It seems to me the, the UN effort to uh, outlaw lethal autonomous weapon systems is too broad, as I note in, in the book, but there can be uh, some kind of ways to to incorporate and to recognize the sensitivities, uh, legitimate sensitivities about the use of, of AI in, in warfare. There's a world of opportunity here, Jack, to explore. Arms control is not dead simply because there's been an information revolution, but arms control will have to be transformed uh, by this era of technological change. I, I completely agree. The 2015 uh, agreement with Xi is not a great example for you because it was basically ignored by the Chinese. And it wasn't a wonderful agreement in the sense that the United States got China to agree to stop doing what the United States already wasn't doing. And that, but that, that actually leads me to my question. I mean, one hurdle to this approach is that the United States itself would have to give up some capabilities. We'd have to agree not to do certain things with our digital capabilities. Yeah. And we'd have to not, agree not to do certain things, not just that were convenient to us, like not, stealing commercial property to help our companies, the 2015 agreement, we would have to agree, for example, not to use digital tools to disrupt Russian society or something like that. And my sense is that no one in the U.S. government is open to this, that no one in the U.S. government, tell me if I'm wrong, is open or thinking hard about giving up Cyber Command or NSA or any kind of DOD capabilities vis-a-vis adversaries. And I think that's just a huge conceptual stumbling block. Am I wrong about that? Uh, no, I think in the main, you're, you're right. It's, you know, I, I, ironically, and, and I say this from personal experience with uh, folks in the previous administration, I think President Trump was certainly the person most likely to be willing to forge a behavior-based agreement 
by which uh, countries would uh, restrain themselves from engaging in political warfare against each other. And uh, it's it re really interesting. And, and I think it does go to you know, profound issues in, in sovereignty. And, and, and that was something that was raised 25 years ago by, by the Russians, the idea that a cyber arms control agreement should include political warfare. It's fascinating to me how aware they were of that subject all the, all the way back then. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons that the American establishment has opposed cyber arms control is because a lot of different institutional interests are would be uh, threatened by this. And, and and all I'll say to that is we're we're talking about a behavior based agreement here, and uh, you still will have these. You need to have the capabilities of Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, and you want to keep those honed because wars will will happen. And and the Shi Obama agreement tried to make that distinction. Uh, between what you do in in peacetime and and of course all bets are are off once a major war begins, and uh, and yeah this of course won't work if if all sides don't don't agree with it, so it it seems to me that's the challenge right now is to uh, suggest uh, ways in which uh, this is in in the interest of of various countries to uh, sign on, and, and I think I I don't know uh, about. China, they feel, uh, I think they have a very free hand at, at the moment. So what levers we might have of another sort, I don't know what can, can be played there in order to induce interest. But I know the Russians remain very, very interested uh, in this. And, and maybe that would be a place to start. Yeah. So, John, my last question is to go back to your idea of a death of a thousand cuts. It seems to me that the cuts are coming more frequently and going deeper and are more consequential and that they that's has been happening pretty persistently for a while now. And so just, I mean, where does this end and what does it look like if, if we continue on this trajectory? How much longer can this go on where we're taking these massive losses of really important data, where this, this disruption, where ransomware is growing? I mean, what does it look like if we stay on this path and, and how long does it, I mean, how long do we have until it becomes really unacceptable? Yeah, if we stay on this path, uh, there's... Uh... Uh, ruin at enormous cost economically, uh, socially, and and strategically. And it's another reason I wrote this book. I have a feeling of growing urgency because, as you say, all of the trends that began relatively small have now gotten much uh, broader, much uh, deeper. One of the things that might get us moving in the right direction right, right now, we're looking at the potential for legislation to, uh, what's the phrase today, build back better, uh, to pay attention to our infrastructure. And I think this could be an opportunity for us uh, with the funds uh, that will be allocated for infrastructure to take a good hard look. At least 80% of our country's infrastructure was uh, built uh, before the internet and the web, the World Wide Web, uh, yet are connected to it. And this is a profound engineering problem. So when we uh, build back better. One of the things we want to do is make sure that these older systems are upgraded. Uh, you know, Colonial Pipeline had software that was several decades old and was uh, a walk in the park for hackers to uh, to get at. So we really need to do a lot of software re-engineering of older infrastructure. And if we begin there, perhaps we can build on it. I, I, I think, you know, we've got to run the table one ball at a time. There's no way to hit the cue ball here and make all the balls go in all the pockets simultaneously. And we're not, we're not Minnesota fats, but I, I think we can uh, line things up 
And uh, if we if we hit infrastructure first, if we look at the expansion, build on the current trend toward the expansion of uh, cloud computing, if we get right with encryption as a society, and that's going to take an administrative as well as a public discourse, I, I think there are steps we can take uh, along the lines I've, I've outlined uh, in, in the book. And as far as the military is concerned, I, I do think you're right that, uh, you know, there are digital natives who within a decade or so are going to be putting on three and four stars and, and open up the possibility of significant change. The question is, do, do we have a, a decade? I, I, you know, my, my sense is we probably don't. Action this day should be our mantra. John, thanks very much. That was great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Hamza Shatu was the podcast audio engineer. This podcast, as always, is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Thank you to Sophia Yan for providing the music. To help this podcast, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>